Hello, it's Julie Bindle, and this week I'm speaking with Jalna Hanma, a former professor of women's studies who, in fact, was pretty much responsible for bringing women's studies as a discipline in academia to the UK before, of course, it all went horribly Judith Butlerite wrong and we saw women's studies be replaced with gender studies or queer studies. Well, the whole point was that sociology, which was the field I'd come from, was entirely about men. So it was really an open field. I think anything that one cared to say about women would be new. Jalna is a sociologist who has used her skills and her knowledge within her activism. She was one of the founders of the National Women's Aid Federation in 1974. She was also one of the key organisers of the hugely influential and important conference on all forms of male violence towards women and girls held in Brighton in 1996, a big international conference and it can be credited with being a key component of the foundation of the global women's movement against male violence. Very, very important, really important work that Jana has done, including looking at repeat victimisation of women when it comes to rape, sexual assault, domestic violence and abuse. Prior to Jalna's really, really groundbreaking research, the assumption, even amongst some feminists and service providers, was that if women have been subject to men's violence in several relationships, we must look at the woman. There's something wrong with her. She's doing something to attract these men. When in fact, what we do know now, and what is common sense, is that these men look for particular vulnerabilities in women. So if she's been in one abusive relationship, she is more vulnerable than had she not been. If she'd been raped and sexually abused, sexually exploited in childhood, then she is more vulnerable to being pimped as an adult. All of those theories began in some way, big or small, with Jalna Hanma. Jalna is now 92 years old. She hasn't quite retired. I think that she once told me she would retire when they carry her out in a box. She's living with her family just outside Barcelona in Spain. And I went to visit my old friend, the woman that I think can be credited with changing the course of my life. I met Jalna when I was 18 years old in Leeds and in my 30s, I was extremely lucky to work with her in helping organise the Brighton Conference. And ever since, we have been close friends and comrades. Lisa Marie Taylor is CEO of Philia, and she's also a founder of the conference. And she is coordinating this Brighton Conference exhibition. Hey everyone and welcome. I am so thrilled that Julie has asked me to do this. I've known Jelna and Julie for well over a decade now and some of you may know that I came to feminism quite late in my late 30s 
and Jalna, Julie and many others were so generous with their time and their sharing of knowledge. I owe them an immense debt of gratitude. I have huge admiration for Julie and Jalna for their hard work over many decades and their tenacity and I think most of all for their feminist analysis. Now along the way, my journey to feminism, I kept hearing about this seemingly mythical event, a conference held in 1996 in Brighton where 3,000 women came together and took part in workshops and panels and discussions. Uh, Andrea Dworkin was one of the speakers and the conference was called the International Conference on Violence, Abuse and Women's Citizenship. Now, a couple of years ago, uh, Sheila and Hina came to me and said, we've got the cassettes, the original recordings from this 1996 event. Do you think Philia might like to have them? Of course, we said yes, and we managed to get some funding and we've been able to digitalize those recordings. And we're building a platform right now so that we can bring those recordings to a wider audience. Um, and we're also going to be bringing some of the recordings um, and some other bits and pieces from that event to our conference in Glasgow in October of this year. Now, it turns out that Jalna and Julie were both part of the organising group that brought this conference into being. So I'm absolutely thrilled to be introducing um, this particular podcast and you'll hear more about the 1996 event during it. So Jalna and Julie are both previous speakers at Philia. Um, I'm really hoping that they'll be there again in October um, and I can't wait to listen to them again and you're in for a real treat with this podcast so do enjoy and I will see you all in Glasgow. Take care, bye bye. Jalna, um, we're looking towards Philia this year, 2023, which will be in Glasgow and you've been to pretty much every filia in the last few years anyway i think so yeah i think probably you missed one so did i but right it's a great conference i mean we all love filia but this year something special is happening so just for the listener the conference that you organized along with kathy itzin and help from many others that were privileged to be involved, that was held in Brighton in 1996, a week-long conference on violence, abuse and women's citizenship, yes. is going to be given another airing at Philia. They have got some funding. They are going to put on a big exhibition about the 1996 conference Right. They have many of the physical audio tapes of the talks, of the plenary sessions, of the individual keynote speeches, and they're going to put that all together, a visual and audio exhibition, so it'll be a bit like recreating the event itself for the women. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Well, you've been interviewed for it, and they'll interview you again, obviously, um, and you'll no doubt be speaking about it at Philia in October. Yes, and if I could look at what I've said previously, because it's been a long time, and yeah. one forgets things. Well, 1996 is a lifetime ago for some of the women who are going to be at Philia, because it's multi cross-generational, this conference. Yeah. 
they won't have been born in 1996, or there will have been children in 1996. Right. So think about it. I can't do the math. How the hell long ago was it? We're talking about... <laughs> so, 1996... And 2006 we... was 10 years. 2016 would be 20 years. So we're talking about 27 years ago. Right. So there will be women at the conference and listening to this now who were not alive right. when we had that conference. That's true. Okay, so let's, let's have a look then at, um, at what led up to organising that conference all that time ago. Now, obviously, you didn't just start your feminist or political campaigning with the Brighton Conference in 1996. So you've got quite a long history of political activism and feminist campaigning, right? This is true. I mean, you're very old, let's face it. Well, yes, that's right. I'm in my 90s. Right, and I'm 60 now. So I was a kid, I was in my teens when we met, and, you know, you probably hadn't even started approaching the menopause. This is what we're talking here. Sure, sure. This is all good, because what we need is for young women to know their history. Right. So you were Professor of Women's Studies, and you pretty much brought Women's Studies to the UK, didn't you? Well, yes, there was somebody who was um, Professor of Women's Studies down in Kent. And uh, when I heard about that, I thought, yes, that's what we need up in Bradford. Because Bradford was an engineering college, really, basically. And it had this relatively small social science department of which there were sociology and also uh, social administration. And I was in the social administration department where Hilary Rose was the um, chairman. I think there were, all women were chairman. So she was chairman of that. And um, there was another woman who was the chairman of the sociology department. So, and that was unusual because there were only three women professors in the United Kingdom at that point in time. And what point in time are we talking about? Is this in the 1970s, early 1970s? Yes, I think so. Right. And the woman who wasn't at Bradford was somewhere in the Midlands, and she was the first woman professor appointed after the Second World War, I think. So three altogether by the time you brought women's studies, and and people were asking why did you need women's studies? Well, the whole point was that sociology, which was the field I'd come from, was entirely about men, only men. There were no women except the occasional woman appeared in family studies, and that was it. So it was really an open field. I think anything that one cared to say about women would be no. Yes. Well, you know, I was doing a debate a few years ago at Durham University Debating Society, which is, you know, it's one of the top five debating societies in in the country. And I was debating 
a man who considers himself to be a men's rights activist. In other words, he's a proud anti-feminist. Yeah. And he was saying that women have had it too easy. Men are the ones now um, suffering from feminism. You know the routine. And he said, he he was doing his five-minute spiel to the students, and he waved his arm expansively around the entire library in which we were debating and said, look at this collection. All I can see is women in science, women in sport, um, women in education, violence against women and girls. He said, where are all the books on men? And a student, a female student, stood up and said, excuse me, every single other book in the library. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what we're talking, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely great. (laughs) So So you obviously were one of the handful of academics that was also doing feminist campaigning and activism outside of the ivory tower. Absolutely. And this is why Brighton, that great conference, week-long conference, 3,000 delegates, so many countries and regions of the world um, that I couldn't even name them. I learnt about uh, demonstrating by being involved in the anti-war movement, the Vietnam anti-war movement. And uh, that was a really good education because there were, um, in particular, one man really kind of took me under his wing and um, helped me develop in ways that you needed to develop if you were going to lead protest movements. And that, that was incredibly helpful because once I was able to get involved in women's studies, I could take what I'd learnt um, f- from that other involvement into women's studies. And then with the work that you developed on men's violence against women and girls, yes. of course, that meant that you were very embedded within the women's liberation movement. Oh, absolutely. I was um, one of the f- first early members of the uh, Women's Liberation Movement in Hampstead, where I was living at the time. And the Women's Liberation Movement started in Hampstead. It was another group. But once my neighbour and I were able to talk to them about it, my neighbour said, right, we'll start a group here, another group. So we went... We met in her flat on the ground floor of 20 Thurlow Road and involved other women who um, came and we discussed issues that they wanted to talk about. What were the issues? It's hard for me to remember, but... It's the same old, isn't it? I mean, we we were saying yesterday, different century, same shit. Men's violence. Yeah. They wanted to talk about that. They wanted to talk about how discriminated they felt they were. You know, that they really didn't have something that uh, the government was talking about, which was equal opportunities. And uh, they were angry about it, which I thought was good. What you want is to be angry. Anger is good. Yeah. We fuel the women's movement on anger. Yeah, absolutely. Without it, you can't do anything. Well, without it, we are what they say we are. 
yes. which is victims, yes. which is the last thing that we are. That's true. That's, that's really true. But in the midst of you doing all of this work, publishing really important research, such as the work on repeat victimisation, on domestic violence and abuse and sexual assault within interpersonal relationships. Yes. That was so important, wasn't it? Because prior to you publishing that work and then the ensuing awareness raising, right. it was assumed that women were repeatedly victimised because there was something wrong with the woman. We looked at the woman, didn't we? Why does she keep having relationship after relationship with violent men? That yes. was the question, wasn't it? That, absolutely. Nobody was looking at the men. Right. Absolutely nobody. So we had to turn that around so we could actually look at the men and not focus solely on the women. And that was quite innovative. innovative I mean, massively, because we had... Often the phrase was violence against women and girls or women who were raped, or women fleeing domestic violence. Yeah. We didn't talk about perpetrators of domestic abuse. We didn't talk about the rapist. No, that's absolutely correct. We didn't. And it's interesting why. And I think the reason why was that all this work, to the extent it was actually a very, very small field, but to the extent there was any work, was being led by men. Right. And I think that, that was the issue. So how to get that field away from the men mm -hmm. um, and focus on women was really what we had to do. Well, in sociology, in anthropology, in criminology. Yes, absolutely. All those it, feminists that did that work. Yeah, that's right. And that was rather hard to do because women were so marginalised. It's incredible the way sometimes women are referred to as a minority. A minority. Yeah, exactly. 51% of That's the population. Right. That's a big minority. Yeah. <laughs> when we, I mean, obviously your, your CV and your body of work, thankfully, is extremely well documented. And this is what we're arguing needs to happen with all our work from what people call the second wave of feminism. I think we just call it feminism, don't we? Yeah, exactly. But it, it built up to you at the um, unit at Bradford University looking at men's violence and women's response to that. And yes. then the idea, absolutely crazy idea, came up that you would organise a week-long conference in Brighton. Yeah. International, if you don't mind, at a time before cheap travel, before, <laughs> pretty much at the beginning of the internet. We only just had emails at this yes. time. Yes, that's right. And we chose Brighton because it was free. <laughs> because we had absolutely no money. That's right. So people paid to come to the conference and that's how they made money at Brighton. You didn't pay for the location. Well, we had the huge conference centre, didn't we, that some of the big party uh, conferences are at. That's right, and that, that was the other part of it. People knew Brighton as a place where big conferences were held. And, and we obviously raised money prior to the conference by running smaller conferences on themes to do with yes. women's oppression and abuse and men's violence. That's right. 
We raised enough, just enough money to host it and to get our keynote international speakers over from yes. developing countries from the global south, more so than the global north. We've prioritised yeah. those women. India, South America. Well, we determined to have an international conference. And that can't just consist of North Americans and Europeans, which it had up to that point. Oh, and the North Americans had dominated the political scene. But one thing that I will always remember with, I mean, I'll remember everything from that week with affection and inspiration, but it was very funny the way that we knew that the North American feminists, some of whom were our keynote speakers, some of whom were merely delegates, we knew that there'd be complaints about the hotel, that the pillows were too hard, the shower was too small, whatever. So you put your sister, Joanne, on the complaints desk, didn't you? I did, <laughs> yes, because I thought she'll be good at this. She actually knows Americans, she knows how to deal with them, and the English really didn't. They didn't understand them. The pettiness so, and the spoilt behaviour. Yeah, exactly. So my sister was really great on that. She was. (laughs) She she knew exactly how to deal with them. And so when they complained about things like the pillows were too hard, she was able to deal with that. (laughs) Now, no English person (laughs) would have been able to have dealt with that. I I really don't think they would know what to say to them. Um, But it was perfect because Joanne's got such a calm manner and they went away placated and we got on with being complained at about disabled access, about class politics, about all kinds of things, which is all part and parcel of having a big feminist international conference anyway. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, it was a week long. It was looking at themes um, from harmful cultural practices to domestic violence and abuse, rape and sexual assault, prostitution and the sex trade, pornography, just to name a few themes. We had violence against women um, within military settings, all kinds of pertinent issues that didn't usually get discussed. You see, what what actually happened was we asked women, what do you want to talk about? So they had lots of different things they would wish to talk about. So we organised small meetings, meeting rooms for them, where they could talk about the things that they thought were important. Yes. And that was, really was unusual. That just didn't happen. You went to conferences where the agenda had been set and you discussed whatever the organisers wished you to talk about. So we set up a different kind of conference, really. It was hugely inspiring because of the thousands of women, there were some men there, and there were, there were lots of women from African nations that were talking about initiatives to tackle male violence that we'd never heard of because we were not yet globalised and we didn't really, we had no social media, as I say, we had email, but many women in the nations that were represented didn't have access to email, to the internet. It was still dial-up, dial-up connection. And we learned so much from, from each other. And one of the things, of course, that we took away from that, because there were many action points for us, was the work being done in tackling the users of prostituted women, the punters, the johns, 
yeah. and the likes of Norma Hotelling, who's since died, Andrea Dworkin, who's since died, Fiona Broadfoot, who's very much with us here, um, Irene Iverson, who's since died. All of those women talked about sexual exploitation and prostitution and the fact that this is not a choice, not a job, and it is violence against women. Yeah. So we were able to join that up, which was really important at the time, because prostitution was just seen as something women chose to do. <laughs> like it was something they wanted to do. It was even empowering, I think. Yeah. So it was, we had to really turn that around completely, which took a while. It wasn't that easy to do, actually. Well, we made a decision, didn't we, that what we wouldn't do is have a debate on the stage between those of us that knew yeah. that prostitution and the sex trade in general was harmful to women, a cause and a consequence of our oppression, and those that were arguing on behalf of the pimps and the traffickers, basically yeah. saying, it's a job, it's work, it's freedom, it's choice. We weren't going to have that played out at that conference because the conference would have been completely destroyed by that debate. Yes, that's right. We wouldn't let that happen. Andrea Dworkin was there. Yeah. We had to have security for Andrea. Do you remember that? That's right. She, she, wouldn't, <laughs> she wouldn't stay at the same hotel that we stayed at because she thought there'd be a uh, danger to her. She, she, she had learned to become very scared, actually, of the threats upon her life. Yes. No, she had. She, was, she really thought someone was going to kill her. And um, so it took a lot of bravery to stand up on that stage and speak when she was such an obvious target. But we had such fun though, didn't we? Because there were the evenings where we would go out with some of the speakers and we would just laugh about yeah. some of the absurdity of men's excuses and posturing yeah. and all of the things that only feminists can do when we get together. Yeah, we had, we had a great time at Brighton. Brighton was the most wonderful conference. We laughed a lot. There's been nothing like it since, but I'm hoping that there will be again, and that's partly why Philia wants to showcase what happened those 27 years ago at its conference in Glasgow. Tickets are on sale now, so, you know, come along and sign up for it. We'll be there, won't we? You and I will be there and many others will be there. But what do you think today, pushing 30 years on from that conference, are the key issues facing women today? Because we've made huge progress. Yes. And, and in fact, our, our type of feminism, the challenging men's violence, has actually been more successful than any other type, than the socialist feminism, than the liberal feminism... We, we've actually, we've changed laws, we've changed hearts and minds, haven't we? That's right. But men are still killing, raping and beating women. Well, that carries on because there really isn't the kind of opposition to it that we need. What do we need? We've always talked about law enforcement, that it's inadequate. They don't really um, do what they should be doing, which is not only catching these men, 
but putting them away for a while. And they don't. They just find them. Well, something so they, ridiculous happens, like they get off. So they find them if, if we're lucky, they find them. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so if they're found guilty, now juries do not like finding men guilty no. of crimes. They really don't. Oh, crimes against women and children. Yes. They don't mind finding some men guilty of some crimes, but just usually not the crimes against us. That's true, actually, because they think, what did she do to deserve that? Right. And as long as that's in a man's mind, uh, and there was a point when there were virtually no women on juries, and we, we objected to that. We said, you have to put women on juries although we had no means to make them do it. <laughs> Since when did we ever have means to make them do anything? Exactly. <laughs> we still exactly. Did. But we made a big fuss about it, that they needed women on juries, because we thought women would be just that little bit easier to influence in this particular area than the men were, because no man really wants to be held accountable for violence against women. And he may not be violent against a woman, but he just doesn't want to be held accountable for it either. And one can understand why. I mean, speaking of which, one of the things that was also really interesting at the Brighton conference was the fact that there were some men there doing actually quite impressive work in tackling other men about their violence and their attitudes towards women. Yes, that's true, they were. There Where was... are those men now? Oh, I've no idea. No idea. Because we do need them to do the work rather than be held up as saints or leaders of the women's movement. We just need them to get on with the work they're doing. That's right. So what would that look like in your view? If you had a man, whether he's in academia or activism, if he said to you or to me at Philia, because there are a handful of men always at Philia, often doing good work... If they said, look, we actually believe that we have a role to play in challenging men about their violent and abusive and misogynistic behaviour. And we'd be very glad to hear that, wouldn't we? Well, we always have been, exactly. And we've encouraged them to get on with it. Yeah. Because we think that's really um, a very... It's difficult for women to make those kinds of charges against men in a way that will make the man change. But if another man says, look, this really isn't on, you've got to change how you behave, that's different. Yeah. So that's really important if men would do that. Now, men were quite frightened, I think, of doing that often. Because it made them look like they were not very manly, I think, and they're all affected by that. And uh, they say, would <laughs> they? The other man would look at them and say, are you nuts? Well, and they're in danger, the weaker men, or the men perceived to be weaker, are actually in danger of the bigger, tougher, stronger yeah. men's violence, aren't they? Yeah, well, exactly. What an absolute dog's breakfast. I mean, <laughs> you, so you, you and I, with many other feminist friends and colleagues who've worked together forever, I mean, I was 18 years old when I met you, um, you know, you're 31, 32 years older than me, so you're a generation older than me. I meet women who are two generations younger than me, right. Ophelia. 
we span a number of generations and we're all very different in terms of where we come from. But we're united by the passion and the commitment to end men's violence against women and to liberate women from that, are we not? Yes, absolutely. And that enables us to overcome a lot of differences which matter in other contexts. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, please come to the conference in Glasgow, the Philia conference, and please immerse yourself in the retelling of the story of that Brighton conference. And Jalna and I will be very happy to tell you all the stuff that didn't make it to the exhibition, like all the stuff that, you know, a little bit off kilter, shall we say. All the secrets of Brighton. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Jalna. Thanks, Lovely to talk to you. Thank you for listening. See you at Philia in October in Glasgow.